if you're used to the sense of this huge empire on which the sun never set, it's very different to think about the English in India in the 16th century. You know, this is the moment where the dried mango, which is kind of the go-to snack of all Indian childhoods, could have come to St. Paul's and that area of London. Could it have taken off where dried mango would have been your go-to choice of snack? rather than crisps. And you have the Mughal Empire, which at its peak stretches almost across the Indian subcontinent, except the southern peninsular regions. That's roughly about 1.24 square miles and 150 million people, <laughs> perhaps. And its monarch, Jahangir's annual revenue, is about 54 million sterling at this moment, which is about a hundred times more than the complete annual revenue of England. Not just the crown's revenue, but the complete annual kind of you know, income of England. In a sense, what I'm trying to do with Courting India, which shifts between the Mughal landscape and the English landscape, and it is an exercise in shifting that lens. What happens if you shift that lens away from telling the story purely from an English perspective and think also about how these people, as the Mughals would have put it, the Kula portion, the sieve wearers on their heads, how these people would have appeared to the Mughal Empire. So you might, on the same given day, be able to juxtapose these two diaries, and Roe will have 10 pages on his blow-by-blow -blow conversation with the Mughal Emperor. And the Mughal Emperor will talk at length of his pet cranes in later retellings of it. It becomes a part of the story of the empire. And that's where I end the book, with this huge mural in the halls of parliament in Westminster. Today, we'll go on an enthralling journey into the complex relationship between England and India before the British Empire's establishment, guided by Nandini Das and a riveting publication, Courting India, England, Mughal India and the Origins of Empire. This meticulously researched book delves into the untold stories of diplomacy, trade and desire, offering fresh perspectives on the origins of empire. Together, we'll unravel more than a dozen intriguing questions, including how does Courting India distinguish itself from other books that examine the 17th century connection between England and India? What are some of the unique cultural practices that were exchanged between England and Mughal India during this time period, unearthing the key individuals, places and events that significantly influenced the evolving bond between England and Mughal India. So join us today as we take another journey down the rabbit hole of history and be sure to stay tuned until the end to uncover surprising truths and catch a sneak peek of the next podcast episode where we cover another interesting historical topic. Firstly, thank you. It's always lovely to be able to have a chat with people who have actually read something that you've written about and you know, in a quite dark corner for months, if not years. But also, it's a privilege to be able to have that conversation, I think. My name is Nandini Das. I'm a professor of early modern literature and culture at the University of Oxford. And that means that I work mainly on the 16th and 17th centuries. So roughly... Elizabeth I, James I, right up to the Civil War. Anything beyond the Civil War is far too modern for me. Um, so that's that's my work. And I work mainly on early modern English literature, but also on cultural history and intellectual history. One question, though, that I have to ask is how did you end up, like, how did that end up being your area of expertise? I don't know whether there was necessarily one thing that may have caused it, but what, what was, like, the journey from where you began, perhaps, to ending up being a professor in the area that you that you are? Well, that's a really interesting question because I think, to some extent, particularly if you come from a South Asian background and I was born and brought up in India, there there's always a little implicit expectation that you're going to be working on post-colonial work to some extent. And I think that is changing slowly, but there are still very few of us uh, in this earlier period, which is far more Anglophone and Eurocentric in terms of the 16th and 17th century kind of research, and very few voices which bring in the, that kind of diversity of perspectives. I started off working on something that was very much a kind of tra traditional field within that area. So I worked on something called the prose romance, which is pre-novel. It's about, you know, knights and ladies and all that kind of stuff, adventures. And that took me into thinking about travel, perhaps predictably, 
because I was interested in cross-cultural encounters and how people cope with cross-cultural encounters and particularly the role that memory plays. You know that feeling when you go somewhere and you look at something that is new to you but you've read so much about it that there is this kind of ghostly memory of all those figures who have gone before you to that place kind of being annoyingly, you know, mumbling into your ear over your shoulders um, and forcing you to look at things in a certain way. Um, so that's what I got interested in. And partly because of that, slowly I started wondering about the interactions between England and the wider global world, essentially, in this particular period before the British Empire was even a thing. That's exactly why I was so interested in the book. I guess in some ways it relates to what you were saying about how you were interested in cultural exchange, especially with travel. But then how did you go from that into then writing this book? Yeah. Well, partly it was the turning point was a deep feeling of frustration. And the reason for that is that, you know, the history of this particular period, the 16th and 17th centuries, is quite often told in terms of big stories and big ideas, you know, voyage and exploration and trade and sovereignty and power. And those are all great concepts. And there's an enormous amount of really interesting work that has been done on those big concepts and how they came together. But so much of it is done inevitably with an eye to what the British Empire was to become in the future. I think what in interested me, particularly in this earlier period, is how counterintuitive it is to that assumption that we bring to this period from multiple perspectives, from the perspective of power relationships. So, you know, if you're used to the sense of this huge, you know, empire on which the sun never sets, it's very different to think about the English in India in the 16th century and their relative importance, not only in contrast to their European competitors, but also to the non-European presences in the world. So that was really interesting for me. But also, I think for me, it was a need to find out more about cultural engagement between the these two nations, in a sense. So one of the things that I'm deeply interested in is an idea of betweenness. In our public discourse, there's, there's a level of thinking which seems to suggest that you can only be this or that. It's a binary. But so many of us are both this and that. And there's a lot packed into that and, isn't there? That sense of being in between cultures and languages and religions. And that's what fascinated me about this period, that those binaries are not really cemented down in this period. There's so much fluidity still. And that moment of possibility that then starts getting fixed and getting more and more inflexible as frameworks and perceptions and assumptions and walls begin to come up in the later periods. Empire, I think, automatically, especially at the moment, it forces people in, in this discourse to almost choose a side. Whereas I think this history is far more fluid. And as you were saying, it become, it comes before all of this. And to some degrees, it's not written on the wall that the empire would happen. So, yeah, I can only say thank you for writing it because it's been a lot of fun reading it and obviously having this conversation. Just then moving on with the book, there have been obviously some that have come before yourself in terms of discussing the relationship between England and India during this particular period. What is it in particular then that is setting your book apart and what are you hoping to achieve with this particular perspective? Usually when we think about contact between England and India, the story tends to start from the late 17th century onwards and mainly in the 18th century and 19th century. And that's understandable because that's the period of, you know, the empire really consolidating itself. It's the period of the Raj. Yep. Yeah. Um, and for better or worse, both in terms of its violence and in terms of its kind of public impact. That's the period that has been foregrounded in our public consciousness. What interested me was a, perhaps a kind of curiosity about what came before. And that's exactly what this story is about. So this is about a moment in the very early 17th century when there's a new king on the throne and England itself has gone through this real kind of change in terms of regime and outlook. So Elizabeth I, who had been on the throne for essentially for a generation's lifetime, more than a generation's lifetime, had, of course, been separated from continental Europe 
And now you have a new king on the throne who's terribly idiosyncratic himself. People don't know exactly how they feel about him, but he fancies himself as a peacemaker. He fancies himself as someone who can build bridges with Europe, but also globally. And they need to do that in the sense that English traders at this point are deeply conscious that they need to have wider trade connections. Their European trade con connections have kind of have fallen apart a bit. So obviously, what do you do? You go to the global south. And that's exactly what they're doing at this point. And I was particularly interested in telling that story, this moment where there's a kind of degree of feeling out. And, you know, part of it is just kind of going out on a limb and going, let's see if this works. That happens on both sides. There's wonderful bits in um, in the story that I tell. For for instance, there's one moment where an English merchant in um, India, he's sitting in um, Agra in Western India, and he writes home to the East India Company, which is still very new at this period. It's only really been go going for about a decade or so. So it's still feeling out its ways of doing things. And he writes to the, his bosses at the East India Company and says, look, I found this thing. There's a fruit called a mango and you can dry it. And I'm thinking of sending you a few jars of it to see if it will sell in London. And I love those moments of, you know, this is the moment where the dried mango, which is kind of the go-to snack of all Indian childhoods, essentially, could have come to St. Paul's and that area of London. People might have been able to taste it. Did it take off? No. Could it have taken off where dried mango would have been your go-to choice of snack rather than crisps? Possibly. <laughs> Who knows, yeah. <laughs> What I would love to get an idea of is, or an image of is, what is England like at this time? And equally, what is India like at this time? Like, what are we talking about in terms of how is England perceived actually for, from Indians and equally vice versa? And what is the power dynamic? Perhaps the best way to kind of set that scene is to just give a rough timeline. So if you think about um, the English monarchs that I've spoken about, there's Elizabeth I, and then Elizabeth the, when Elizabeth I dies in 1603, there's a brief kerfuffle about who's going to inherit the crown from her, and then it is James, who's, who was James VI of Scotland, becomes James I of England. So there's that regime change shift lenses and think about the Indian subcontinent and particularly kind of the northern Indian subcontinent, we have the Mughals. Elizabeth's direct contemporary is Akbar the Great. And he's a fascinating character. He is the third Mughal emperor and the first really stable one. The Mughals themselves are Mongols who come down from, if you think about the map of India, from the top and slowly spread their way down into the triangular bit of the, the South Asian kind of peninsula. So there's Akbar the Great, but the people I'm really interested in live around the time of James I in England and Akbar's son, Jahangir. So just to set the scene in terms of England, as I said, England at this period has been going through a fairly fraught period of separation from continental Europe. Henry VIII breaking away from the Catholic Church has been a part of it. But then there's also been ongoing tensions with Spain, which is the, the Spanish and Portuguese empires are huge in terms of power in continental Europe. And that skews the balance in power structures. England is feeling increasingly isolated in this period. And that isolation has enormous impact in terms of its culture and in terms of its economy. In terms of its culture, there's a deep sense among the English that they're slightly running behind times in terms of fashion, and music and art and all of those things. So there's a little bit of a chip on the shoulder. In terms of trade, there's a significantly bigger anxiety because they're deeply aware, of, particularly English merchants are deeply aware, the Portuguese and the Spanish, and increasingly the Dutch, are essentially carving up European handle on world trade. And the English are really running behind. And that's partly because the English monarchy hasn't invested enough. So the English government, the state, hasn't given them the kind of monetary and economic and diplomatic support that the Spanish have with the Spanish Empire, for instance. So there's that problem. On the other hand, again, jump over the seas and you have the Mughal Empire, which at its peak stretches almost across the Indian subcontinent, except the southern peninsular regions. That's roughly about 
1.24 square miles and 150 million people, <laughs> perhaps. And its monarch, Jahangir's annual revenue, is about 54 million sterling at this moment, which is about a hundred times more than the complete annual revenue of England. Not just the crown's revenue, but the complete annual kind of you know, income of England. So you can see there's a huge difference between the two. And that's partly, I think, what really fascinates me, that once, in, in, a, in a sense, what I'm trying to do with Courting India, which shifts between the Mughal kind of landscape and the English landscape, and to and fro's between the two, as you will have seen. And it is an exercise in shifting that lens a little bit. What happens if you shift that lens away from telling the story purely from an English perspective and think also about how these people, as the Mughals would have put it, the Kula portion, the sieve wearers on their heads, how these people would have appeared to the Mughal Empire, to the Mughal bureaucrats and tax officers and petty officers, as well as to the emperor himself, what would they have made of them? And it's, it's a brilliant way, I think, or that you've put the book together because it's not like a big, long narrative. It weaves these stories of individuals within it, which makes it far more immersive and engaging and actually then makes you question, hold on, none of this was really written on the wall like there was so much going on and there was like even just a description of the power imbalance like you never would have then thought a few hundred years later it's actually completely the reverse what then do you think or perhaps i guess how do you believe then the cultural exchange between these two nations how do you think then it impacted both of them over time like as you mentioned it seems like the british are seen as a i guess almost like a small interference almost within the Mughal eyes like to the Mughals it's almost as like they don't it's nothing to write home about there's nothing that they're like oh wow the, the British but how then does this cultural exchange impact both of them over time and perhaps actually what's kind of the immediate impact that they both take away from the initial kind of stages of this um exchange you're absolutely right that from the Mughal perspective it is very much a blip in fact it's not even a blip so one of the really amusing things um, and interesting telling things about the the documents that I look at is that from the perspective of this first English ambassador who sent off to India to get these all-important trading licenses from the Mughal emperor, from Thomas Rowe's perspective, there's loads of paperwork. He writes a daily journal and we know exactly what he's doing, who he's meeting, even what he's eating and when he has a stomach upset. We know everything sparing no detail. On the other hand, we have the daily memoir of the Emperor Jahangir himself. So that's also a day-to-day -day report, but it doesn't mention the English at all. So you might, on the same given day, be able to juxtapose these two diaries, and Roe will have 10 pages on his blow-by-blow -blow conversation with the Mughal Emperor. And the Mughal Emperor will talk at length of his pet cranes hatching their fledglings in their nest and nothing at all about the English ambassador who was at the court on the same day. So that gives you a sense of the difference in importance. Oh, I think that's a brilliant example. And I think it puts perfectly into perspective actually kind of what's going on. Would it be fair to say then that the relationship developed over time because of the waxing and waning of the Mughal Empire? Or is there more to it in terms of there are there's other dynamics that feed into it? But equally, I'm also aware, especially when reading diaries of British officers when they're trying to, when they're fighting in the Anglo-Sikh wars, they also paint a picture where it's very much like it wasn't inevitable. Most of the diaries talk of like a pandemic of alcoholism, people just dying from lack of water, people dying from the weather, people dying from malnutrition, diseases wiping out half of the regiment before they've even got to the battle lines. Like it's just so almost crazy when you read that then to think that they succeeded. I think I think you're absolutely right. There is a temptation, isn't it, when we're looking at history, because we know how things ended, to think, of course it's going to, it was meant to go that way. But it's the uncertainty that fascinates me. I suppose that's partly, you know, my literary training coming in. You know, you, you're always questioning how we're looking at a narrative and what kind of a narrative we make of it. So one of the things that happens with this first embassy is that in later retellings of it, 
it becomes a part of the story of the empire. And that's where I end the book with this huge mural in the halls of parliament in Westminster of Roe going to the, the Mughal court, essentially, where it's very much a part of British history. And to some extent, the answer, a historian's answer to that would be yes and no. Yes, in the sense that what Roe says about India becomes hugely influential in creating a framework of expectations around India. So, you know, because it's one of the very first detailed accounts, Roe says, well, the Mughal Empire, the court is effeminate and it's ruled by women. And that becomes a historiographical narrative that people keep repeating and responding to. He says, well, everything works on bribery in India. And that is a narrative still ongoing. And one of the things that I try to unpack in my book is how much of his perception of the Mughal court is actually framed not by India, but by the court he's left behind, by the Stuart court in 17th century England, where there's a huge scandal brewing about corruption and bribery and financial debt, essentially, and crisis in various ways. So in a way, the lens that Roe is wearing, the glasses he's wearing, are the glasses of Stuart corruption when he looks at the Mughal court and its cultures of gift giving. So there's a huge influence there, I think, but it's the influence is constructed in a way that we don't expect, I suppose. I just think it's always interesting to find out the truth behind the narratives because it makes perfect sense once you actually then put into the picture that there's this scandal going on back home and actually they're the spectacles that Rose looking through and then paying an image of, 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 of the Mughal Empire. Are there any particular cultural practices that you could perhaps describe where there is a cultural exchange between the two nations? Like I know you, earlier you spoke about the dried mangoes and this trader almost sending them back home and it not catching on. But is there anything else that is almost, or I guess it's small, but it's a large narrative in that it's such a small story is actually saying so much about what's going on at this point? That's such a lovely question, actually. There, there are notes of little glimpses, and that's partly why what I wanted to unearth in this story, rather than thinking simply about faceless corporations like the East India Company, I really wanted to get out those individual stories, which sometimes get lost. And we tend to forget that behind those faceless corporations, there were real people, human beings on both sides. So one engagement that immediately comes to mind is not between very important people, but between Roe and his Indian interpreter, a man called Jadu, either Jadu or Jadu. And for those who speak any of the North Indian languages, you'll know that, you know, Jadu, the word magic, itself has a nice resonance to it. But uh, this particular interpreter is an ordinary man from Western India, from we think probably around Surat, where the English have their base. And there, there's a recurrent narrative of tension about salaries, which I found utterly enthralling. You know, this is a man who was consistently underpaid. And he's consistently underpaid because Roe, as the ambassador, is consistently underpaid by the East India Company. So he doesn't have very much money to play with either. And then he pushes it on to this interpreter and says, ah, Jadu is demanding more money again. And he's gone off now and I'm without an interpreter at the Mughal court. So, so there's a lot of very high level drama that is happening because this one ordinary English, Indian man is standing his ground and saying, you're not paying me my money's worth. So I'm off. So there's that story. But in terms of rituals and cross-cultural encounters, the other thing that I was constantly fascinated by is our rituals of food. You know, Indian food is such a cornerstone of British culture today in various ways and British cultural memory. It's really fascinating to get those moments where the first Englishman have their very first taste of Indian food and what they make of it. And I had enormous amount of fun trying to recreate some of the recipes that some of them may well have tasted. Oh, wow. Was there anything in particular that like was a common dish at this time? 
Well, there's huge amounts of stuff. So Thomas Rowe, the English ambassador's chaplain who goes with him, Edward Terry, who writes a fairly detailed diary, talks about banquets where they have like 60, 70 dishes being served. And he's absolutely enthralled by all of it. Rowe himself tends to be a grumpy man. And the thing you can see that, you know, typically for any traveler, there are certain things you miss and they're the things that you least expect. So the thing that Roe really misses is leavened bread, yeasty bread, you know, European bread, essentially. He's sick and tired of various different delicious kinds of flatbreads by the time he gets to the end. There's one moment where he's on a long journey and the high point in his journey is this small village where he says, in this journey village for the very first time I've had leavened bread instead of flat bread and it's a taste of home for him and those are things that make the story humane in a way we can all identify with that moment yeah no definitely although I think flatbreads are superior but that's a that's a personal choice right <laughs> like but how does religion like what role does religion play in the cultural exchanges religion pay, plays a hugely important role particularly for Roe so Thomas Roe is a Protestant Englishman and he's particularly interesting because he belongs to a faction of Protestant English men in power in this period who kind of think that England should be doing more about pushing the cause of Protestantism, not only within England, but globally, and certainly against their Catholic competitors. So quite often, even discussions around trade become discussions around religion at the same time throughout this period. And it's across the globe, essentially. So, you know, English trade merchants will say, well, look at the Spanish. They're establishing their bases in South America, and we need to do the same in North America for the sake of the Protestant cause, and also because it earns us lo loads more money. Money, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So those two get com complicated. Similarly, in India, when Roe goes to India, the Portuguese have been in India for over a century by this period. And for Roe, those two causes, the Protestant cause and his competition, his sense of anxiety about Portuguese Catholic power, go very much hand in hand. In terms of the Mughals, the interesting thing, of course, is that the Mughals themselves are fairly new. In India, Jahangir is the fourth Mughal emperor. And one of the things as Islamic sovereigns, they soon realize, in fact, Jahangir's father, um, Akbar, is the one who really realizes this fairly early on, is that there is really no way of establishing a uniform Islamic empire over the subcontinent. That may well be an ideal. But in pragmatic grounds, it's never going to happen. Even the sheer expanse of this, remember, 1.224 million square miles, that sheer geographical expanse. So the Mughals throughout this period have this practice, which is both intellectual, but also very pragmatic, of creating a degree of flexibility around religions. So Akbar himself, who was deeply interested in multiple religions, would have these religious dialogues where he would bring Hindus and Sikhs and Muslims together and Buddhists, let them debate out philosophical questions at his court. Jahangir is less interested in the intellectual perspective, but he certainly takes the point that actually pragmatically, you need people to do their business on their own terms. That does not mean that there is no inequality and there's no violence. Of course, there is always inequality and violence in any kind of statecraft in this period. However, for Roe, this is really, really new. And not just for Roe, for all Englishmen in this period. Coming from this tiny Protestant state, which is so deeply paranoid about letting any other alternative voices erupt within its space. They come to Mughal India and they are absolutely fascinated by this idea that you can have alternative religious presences. And not only that, those presences can actually coexist in the same place. So Ajmer, where Jahangir holds his court for the greater part of Rose Embassy, is a huge Sufi Islamic presence. It's a Sufi pilgrimage site, but only a day's, been you know, a half a day's ride out is Pushkar, which has been a Hindu pilgrimage spot for centuries. 
essentially. When Roe comes back, that lesson stays with him for years, decades. You know, even at the end of his career, he's telling Charles I that the only way you can resolve your, you know, little financial crisis, which is heading the country towards civil war, is to copy the example of the Mughal emperor and let people coexist and do their business without meddling in their religious lives. It's crazy because of how things have obviously then developed since then. We spoke earlier about how Roe is writing pages and pages about his encounters with the Mughals, and the Mughals are essentially, it's not even a blip to them to some degree. Besides people like Roe, what were perhaps some of the traders or kind of, I guess, some of the people that weren't necessarily in power, but still English, what were their perceptions of the Mughals, and especially at this early period where ideas and cultural exchange hadn't really taken place to a degree where people were reading about it perhaps in the paper and having a particular image already in their mind? Like what, what were normal, when I say normal, like British people thinking of, or what do they think of the Mughal Empire at this point? Well, there wasn't very much known about the Mughal Empire, and we know that because of the Kind of, kind of terribly misspelled royal letters that are sent to India right from Elizabeth I onwards. So, for instance, Elizabeth I sends a letter to Akbar the Great and calls him the King of Surat, um, which is kind of like saying, well, you know, um, Napoleon was the king of Paris. Yeah. <laughs> or Nice, perhaps. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, so there's that. But, you know, the thing that really fascinates me, and we still don't know enough, I think, um, so much more work needs to be done, is about exactly what you said, that ordinary person, the person on the streets perception of India. And one of the things that I try to point out in the book is that perhaps India is not as much of an unknown quantity as we assume it was. So we know, for instance, that if you were in London in this period, or in Southampton or Portsmouth, one of those great port cities, there is a chance that you would have come across Indian sailors because life expectancy on long sailing voyages was so low. Quite often returning ships would bring back, you had to man the ships, right? Yeah. yeah. So you'd bring back sailors from the ports you went to. So there is a chance, there's a very light likely chance that if you were an Englishman walking around entering a pub in Deptford in this period, you would be coming across not only other pale-skinned Englishmen, but across Gujarati sailors. We know that there are Indian men in London at this point. There's, there's a wonderful record that I found, which is of an Indian man, Samuel Mansour, who marries an Englishwoman in the church at Deptford um, just before um, Roe goes on his journey. And then he petitions the East India Company asking them whether they'll allow him to take his wife back to India. And the East India Company says, absolutely not. The company ships are no place for women. So there's those little glimpses are what interest me as well. And you talked about ordinary people. I mentioned this woman who married Samuel Mansour, but there are English women who go abroad and Indian women who come to England. And those stories, I think, risk getting swallowed up in this big narrative about empire quite often. One person that absolutely fascinates me is a woman, Mariam Begum, who was brought up at the Mughal court in India, then is married off to an East India Company merchant adventurer, essentially, a man called William Hawkins, and comes over to England. So in around 1610, there is a moment, a narrow window, when there are two Indians within scare quotes, Indian women within square quotes, in England, in London, within streets of each other at, at the same time. One of them is Mariam Begum, the Mughal kind of courtly woman, and the other is Pocahontas, who's been brought over from Virginia as another kind of advertisement. And these are both, you know, one is a representative in a way, one is an effect of the East India Company's work, and the other is an effect 
of the Virginia Company's work across the globe. And those stories too need to be told, I think. No, no, definitely. I think what I enjoy about your book is that it weaves those stories into a greater narrative. That's one thing that really intrigued me was, hold on, this guy, like, so this guy sending Mango back, like, it adds, it, it gives the... Rather than a narrative of, oh yeah, the British went, this happened, it's actually like, as you were saying, the human beings and how that is developing over time. One thing that caught my attention as we were talking was how India, to some degree, isn't an unknown quantity at that time. However, a modern perception would almost argue that the narrative that has built up since then is that it was an unknown quantity and the British discovered it. But isn't that mainly just almost like a justifying theory that the British have created themselves out of whatever then to enable... almost to justify what then they did, rather than it actually being the truth. Like, as in it wasn't an unknown quantity, as we've seen, and as we are discussing, and as the book rightfully portrays, but the narrative that has been most dominant would argue the opposite. That's a really interesting question, I think. And yes, I think to some extent, you could argue that what the British were doing in this period would was trying to get their hands on and trying to get to intellectual grips with something that had pre-existed. And it's not simply not simply India, but this huge kind of South Asian Red Sea trade route, essentially, So, which involves the Ottomans, the Safavids, and the Mughals. And then in southern India with Vishakhapatnam and various other kind of the Hindu kingdoms of India as well, and then goes into China. So there's this huge pre-existing complicated trade network, which had been going on for hundreds of years before the Europeans became aware of it. What's interesting is how often narratives of attempts to understand become translated or become presented as narratives of discovery. Um, so what's happening with Roe, for instance, there's, I opened the book with a map that Roe commissioned on his return voyage. And that map becomes the, the kind of go-to cartographic representation of India for about 200 years afterwards. The interesting thing about that map is that it's deeply populated around the edges. So all the port cities that the British, the English at this point would have known are known to them. But the internal bit is pretty much a void and full of errors, in a sense. And that represents, I think, uh, that's a really good emblem of the way British knowledge, English knowledge in this period worked. They were very good at pinpointing the things that were, that touched their interests. And the things that didn't touch their interest remained a void, in a sense. And that ultimately leads to the kind of imperial lens through which India is seen, where what is immediately translatable in terms of imperial interest gets codified and labeled and put into a certain structure. What is not immediately understandable in terms of imperial interest gets codified as something I if you know, on a positive level as Indian mysticism, and it's all very vague, or as superstition and the inflexible, impenetrable backwardness of something that is non-European. And you can see that kind of negotiation beginning at this point, which is why I mentioned earlier that there is a kind of long shadow of Rose influence on later empire, just as well as that distinction between his perspective and the later empire's perspective. Considering then we've been almost flirting with the idea of empire and and obviously the book mainly focused on the period prior to that, a question that's often leveled with this debate about empire and I guess a similar question could be asked in a perhaps a different way here is, do you think the cultural exchange was mutually beneficial to both or was there one side that benefited more? When we look at empire, a lot of the evidence supports the fact that the subcontinent is almost bled dry, for want of better words. And there's obviously one side that is very much reaping the rewards. However, with this cultural exchange, I don't know whether it will be harder to pinpoint because it's not necessarily quantifiable in a sense but is there one side who comes off better or is it kind of mutually exclusive and actually i would argue to some degree from what we've been discussing to the muggles it's not even a thing like it's not even something that they're bothered about let alone them considering it to be of any benefit well i think again there 
there's a necessity, I think, there to make that distinction between the pre-British Empire and post-British Empire period. Once the East India Company establishes itself post-Civil War in England and, you know, puts in that enormous machinery that William Dalrymple in The Anarchy, for instance, has talked about, and that machinery of violence, essentially, to impose its rule, there there is a steady drain of resources, of course, from the subcontinent. But I think there is, in this pre-imperial moment, there is a degree, and this is what I was talking about earlier, a degree more of fluidity and flexibility in those exchanges. There are certain exchanges that you wouldn't think of in terms of a financial or economic trade law, you know, loss and benefit, and that could be in terms of art for instance. So Mughal, the Mughal court and Mughal artists are deeply interested in European representational art. And that leads to a really rich cultural exchange between the two. There is a degree of exchange from the English perspective in terms of everyday life. You know, there's a huge amount of work that has been done in recent years on cotton and the impact that trade in cotton had on Europe, on European lifestyles and on European culture, essentially, Similar, similarly with spices. So cultural exchange, I think, is far more amorphous and far has a far longer history to be quantified very clearly on very kind of cut and dried binary grounds in that sense. Some of those things, um, equations are far messier. So, you know, going beyond Rho, one of the people that I'm really interested in, for instance, is the first documented Englishman in India, a man called Thomas Stevens, who's not a Protestant, he's a Catholic. So he escapes from England, goes to Portugal, and then comes to India and establishes himself in Goa, in Portuguese Goa. Now, he is the first person to write a biblical epic, or the first Englishman to write a biblical epic. This is 50 years before Milton, and he does it in an Indian language. He does it in, in Marathi and Konkani languages. Now, you could say, well, this is kind of cultural translation from one perspective, or from another perspective, you could say, well, is this cultural appropriation? He's using indigenous languages for his own missionary purposes. But then what do you do with the fact when the Portuguese ban prayers in indigenous languages because they think, you know, that's fomenting rebellion within their state? And then this book that he writes, the Christophorana, goes underground. It becomes a radical text for Indian Christians to read surreptitiously as a mark of protest against Portuguese rule. When you think about cultural exchange, those binaries get messy very, very quickly. But they get messy in interesting and necessary ways because that's how cultural production, cultural exchange works. It doesn't obey those rules of them and us. Completely. And that's what's so fun and interesting about it is it just reminds you how it's so grey. There isn't this clear divide where you can go, yes, it's this or that. And hence why I kind of enjoy being able to put these questions to people who have spent, I can't imagine how many years you may have spent putting that book together because it is... I don't want to think about that. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very sizable, meaty book, which just from the weight of it, you can just kind of gather how much time has gone into gone into such a, a great piece of work. Besides Roe, are there any particular individuals or events that you believe played a significant role in shaping the cultural exchange between Britain and the subcontinent? Well, there are individual figures like this man I mentioned, Thomas Stevens, who's the first documented Englishman in India. So there are individual individuals like that. And I pause there because quite often when you think about individuals who've had an important impact, they tend to be men. And one of the things that I was particularly interested in was not only the ordinary people who tend to get lost, but the ordinary women who get tend to get lost even more. So people like Mariam Begum, this woman who was born and brought up at the Mughal court, married and brought over to England, is one of those figures who seems very minor, but her presence skews the balance and sets a tone for Anglo-Indian interaction. But the one figure that I was constantly fascinated by, who's really not looked at 
kind of extensively um, and hasn't been looked at extensively till very recently is Noor Jahan, who is Jahangir's 20th and favorite wife, the Mughal emperor's wife. And in fact, Jahangir gives the role and title of the empress. She's one of the very few Mughal women to have coins struck in her name. And that practice starts roughly around the time when Ro is present in India. And one of the things that I try to show in the book is how much of the negotiation that Ro does, you can kind of see by putting the jigsaw together from the Mughal perspective and from the British perspective, is probably in response to forces that he doesn't quite see and doesn't quite understand that are operating beyond the seclusion of the harem by people like Noor Jahan. So for me, Noor Jahan is absolutely a key figure in the story of Anglo-Indian encounter. Just then with the book, and this is almost like the penultimate question, what challenges did you face whilst you were conducting research for this book? Well, it's inevitably what happens is you start off with something that seems quite manageable and small. In my case, I started off by thinking, oh, this, you know, journal by Thomas Rowe, the first English ambassador, sounds, looks really interesting. And the manuscripts are there in the British Library. Um, so I'll go and have a look at it. And then it expands and it expands even more. And that's exactly what happened with this. The main challenge was, as you said, archival in the sense that the picture that I was trying to put together, because I was so keen on making sure that it had, it gave equal weight to the English perspective and to the Mughal perspective, meant that I was dealing with Mughal archives and with European archives and not only English archives. So a lot of the, the kind of facts and discussions around what the English were doing was being done in response to what, say, the Portuguese or the Dutch were doing in the kind of Bay of Bengal or in the Red Sea. So I had to look at those as well. So the, it's about putting these stories from multilingual archives, which are quite often fragmented. The other challenge was how to make sense of something that is in pieces. And by that, I mean, going back to what I was talking about earlier, this, my kind of need perhaps to retrieve some of those human stories rather than thinking in the abstract about institutions like the monarchy in either country or corporations like the East India Company. To some extent, it is easier because those corporations are well documented to be able to just go to those archives and tell those big stories. But then I wanted to pick up on people like Samuel Mansour, this sailor from India who wants to take his English wife home. And But how do you tell that story when all you have is a little fragment in an East India Company record? So I had to figure out ways in which I could weave those together. And that was a major challenge as well. But it was a fun one and a necessary one as well, I think. Well, I'm glad that you overcame those challenges because it's produced this absolutely great piece of work which has given us the opportunity to have this discussion the last 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 question that i have and this is just more out of curiosity than anything which is obviously as a sikh i'm absolutely intrigued at what early encounters or descriptions of sikhs may have said was there anything in particular during your archival research that you came across that that shed any light on the sikhs in this particular period Ah, that's really interesting. Roe doesn't really mention the Sikhs as an entity, as a community, but other East India Company travellers do sometimes. You have references to the Mughal um, Empire's ongoing struggles in Jahangir's own records in the Jahangir Nama, for instance, from time to time he'll talk about that. But where it comes forth really interestingly is sometimes even when the English are not quite aware of the community or how the Sikhs are distinguished from other non-Islamic communities in India, quite often they'll talk about going through what is clearly the Punjab and they'll talk about the warriors who guarded our caravan 
at night. So there's a moment in one particular East India Company record where they talk about how there is a threat of robbers around that area, but the English insist that they're going to camp outside the village. So this particular, the people of this particular village take it upon themselves to just stand guard around these clueless foreigners in their encampment all night to protect them from the robbers. And then there are passing references to how their particular communities who are well-built and strong and immensely powerful. And you can see a little bit of hesitancy on the part of the English writers on this in this point where they don't want to accept the martial and kind of physical presence of these Indian bodies that they can see. But at the same time, they cannot not acknowledge it. So there's an interesting kind of power dynamic there going on, you know, walking that very thin line between I'm impressed, but I don't want to admit I'm impressed. It's interesting because it's almost like the uh, beginnings of kind of the martial race theory and how they very heavily build on that narrative. And that, again, is a completely different conversation. But thank you for 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 that information. We've reached the end of all the questions that I had prepared. I can only say thank you for such a brilliant hour or so, like it's flown flown by. I just want to double check. Is there anything in particular that you want to mention or is there anything that we may have missed out that you just want us to include? No, Omar, you framed your question so beautifully. I think we've covered thank everything. You. Yes, no, definitely. The other problem is... Thank you. It's just difficult sometimes balancing covering everything and then also like a, a period of time where people will actually pay attention. I can only just say thank you so much for your time. It was brilliant to even have the opportunity to do this. It was amazing. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. No, not a problem. Enjoy the rest of your day. Speak soon. Speak soon. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. And that's a wrap for today's podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I did creating it. A massive shout out to our awesome YouTube members, especially the new ones, Raj Sudan, Gulbir Singh, Ricardo Goulart, Wushu Man, Not Davin, Pujangi, as well as our older members, Desert Peak Films, Homejit Singh, Amanveer Mandir, Hunter Hill, Radhajit Kaur, Gurpreet Dunjo, GS, Gary Parmar, N Singh, and Jazz Dylan. Let's not forget our amazing Patreon members, including Neil B, Jazz Dylan, Gurpreet Singh, Gurdeep Bath, Himmat Singh Khalsa, Anishman, Mani Singh, Rav Singh, Runeet Gaur, Yasmin Jaswal, Gurgan Singh, and Gurpreet Dunjal. If you're passionate about the work I'm doing and want to support it, consider becoming a paid YouTube member or part of our Patreon community via the links in the description below. Thanks again for tuning in. I can't wait to see you in the next one. And you know, there are multiple sources who independently say of each other that there was bribery, there was blackmail, there was sexual blackmail, there was all kinds of politicking, pulling in of favors. You know, yoga in general is a bricolage, right? There's telemarketing scams, many of them. There's smuggling, there's fraudulent art sales, there's um, gemstone scams. Um, there is there's the drug dealing, the drug smuggling. Um, when you put all that together, it's it's disproportionate. You know, if you had a high school where you had 20, 30, 40 people involved in felony level criminal activity, that would say something.